Craig. So I'm privileged to be up here this morning, and uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into God's Word. Gracious Father, I pray that if there are those here today that are walking through suffering, that my words would be an encouragement. I'm only a man, and I have no authority on this topic, but I pray that it is helpful and it would shed light on your good will in these matters. May Christ be seen in this topic, and may we, the church, find respite in Jesus. Jesus, who was sent to the slaughter for our redemption. I pray we see the fullness of your glory this morning. Father, may you strike any falsehood from my lips and allow me to honor your holy word. Amen. We're going to be in Psalm 88 today. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Psalm 88. My topic this morning is affliction and suffering. I pray that my exposition here is helpful. I'm going to start this morning by reading the entirety of the psalm, Psalm 88. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me and you'll overwhelm me with all your waves, Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a whore to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me altogether. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. This is Psalm 88, the word of our Lord. Church, do you ever feel like this man? Have you ever traveled the rocky terrain of life, your path full of obstacles and pits, hazards that seem too difficult for you to overcome? Have you ever been so low that you thought it was impossible to ever get out of the pit that you were in? 
Have you ever been so oppressed by sin or anxiety, depression, melancholy, suffering, affliction, and pain that you felt as this man? Have you ever said, oh God, why have you hidden your face from me? It is my earnest belief that many here have felt this. I suppose it's natural then to ask, shouldn't we focus on something else? To focus on such difficult realities of life is no fun, of no profit. Surely it's a waste of time, right? Perhaps you feel that way. If you hold that perspective, let me speak to you for a moment. If we walk through life always attempting to force ourselves away from topics that we find messy or complicated or hard, then we fail to grasp the breadth and depth of what God's Word contains. Yes, spiritual depression is hard. Mental illness is hard. Chronic pain is hard. Walking in repentance and confronting the consequences of your sin is hard. These trials and other trials that many of us experience are tough. However, the Psalms and much of Scripture is filled with people who walked through these things. They were not so much unlike you or me. We have much to glean from them. My prayer for you is for you not to only desire pleasure and ease, to only desire ease is a devilish trap meant to enslave us to our desires. As Christians, we must resist this temptation. King Solomon tells us the folly of chasing your desires. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 1-11, through 11, he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? I search with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves, and I had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. And then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. To chase after pleasure resulted in Solomon stating that such a venture was mere vanity and striving after wind. Well, what do we know about wind? Wind is elusive. We don't know from 
where it comes. We don't know where it goes. We can't capture it. What Solomon here is saying is to chase only pleasure is a fool's errand. So church, don't be foolish. Do not keep yourself from the difficulties of life, for in them you will mind the deep pleasures of God. Church, we are offered life through suffering. The suffering of Jesus on the cross is the conduit by which we are saved. Ultimately, what Christ offers to us is not physical ease. There is no promise for that. In fact, our Savior says in Matthew, verses 11, or Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 30, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in spirit, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus here offers the lowly saint respite and rest. But this offer is not Jesus taking on our physical burdens or troublesome circumstances. He didn't spare Stephen from the stones. He didn't spare Paul from the beatings. He doesn't spare us from the hard work. Instead, Jesus takes on our greatest debt, our greatest need. He provides our souls with everlasting redemption. You see, this is the easy yoke and the light burden that he speaks of. Our souls are not burdened with a hard yoke and a heavy burden that must work hard for redemption. No. The way of working for salvation is the way of men. The way of Jesus is something altogether contrary to this. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. We place our hope. We place our hope of salvation in Christ Jesus. Our eternal justification cannot be earned by a mere created being. As a mere creation could never pay the debt of God's wrath. Our sin has created an infinite debt and it can only be paid by Jesus himself. The wrath of God must be satiated by a fully divine, co-equal, co-eternal person, namely the Son of God, Jesus. In this redemption, we are given the indwelling Spirit, and we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. So while Christ offers our soul his easy yoke and light burden, we are required to walk through affliction and enter into suffering with Christ. In this, we are refined by God as he transforms us into the image of Christ. Church, our resolve, many of you know this, will be tested as we are called to persevere. Acts 14 says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Hebrews 1.3 shows us that Christ is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of God's nature, and that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Our Savior, our hope, our rescuer, our Messiah, our Sovereign Lord, 
is the omnipotent suffering servant. And in him, though he is brought low, we are lifted up. You see, Christians are a unique breed of people. There's something so fundamentally refreshing about our faith. It understands the very station of our life. Christ, by the very nature of his humanity, has been tempted, as you and I have been in every way. Hebrews says of Jesus, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in times of need. Let us not stray from confronting the suffering and affliction in our lives. Why? Because these things are ordained and promised to us by our very Savior himself. While we persist here on earth in exile, we can rest assured in one fundamental truth. We will suffer. Paul says in Philippians 1.21, For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So here we are, we are meditating on this psalm. This passage is testimony of a terrible tragedy. When read, it doesn't particularly evoke comfort. No, it's a hard and difficult read. It leaves the reader feeling empty. However, the word empty doesn't quite do it justice. See, this man is at a breaking point. He seems to be at an inflection point the precipice of something disastrous, the cliff of destruction, if you will. And we're forced to ask the question, will he fall over the cliff? Will he perish? You see, something has gone terribly wrong, and it appears that what is before him is the threat of eternal darkness. He ponders something excruciatingly dark. But what he ponders is profoundly in touch with our own troubles. Among other things, he essentially asks, Why? Why has God put me in this darkness? And most notably, where? Where is God? This psalm is unique in that it doesn't resolve itself. It brings the reader into a deep valley that feels perilous. And it leaves you there. It ends without resolution. It's a jarring feeling. I'm sure you picked it up when I read it earlier. Often, much of what we experience is not neatly wrapped up like a typical story arc. Not all things in life seem to fit into neatly predefined stories with a problem and a resolution. It's just not how life works. Life is at times messy, and seemingly chaotic. The truth is that life can be difficult. Life can be hard. For the believer and the non-believer, much of life is suffering. Among other things, life can be full of anxiety, conflict, sadness, and anger. It's confusing at times and deeply troubling. 
there would seem to be an infinite stream from which all humans can experience suffering. When I wrote this sermon, I was walking through one of the more intense trials in my life. As such, I wanted to write a sermon about suffering while the wound of the thorn was still fresh. Often, we depart from the immediate pain and our senses are dulled and we so quickly forget what it is to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist British preacher, said of this psalm, I think that this is the darkest of all the psalms. It has hardly a spot of light in it. The only bright words that I know of are in the first verse. The rest of the psalm is very dark and very dreary. Why then am I going to read it? Because it may be there is some poor heart here that is very heavy. You cannot tell out of this great crowd how many sorrowing and burdened spirits there may be amongst us. But there may be a dozen or two of persons who are driven almost to despair. My dear friend, if this is your case, I want you to know that somebody else has been just where you are. Remember how the shipwrecked man upon the lonely island all of a sudden came upon the footprints of another human being. So here, on the lone island of despondency, you shall be able to trace the footprints of another who has been there before you. The words of Spurgeon here point to something exceedingly comforting. You're not the first to experience this, and you won't be the last. Take heart in knowing that other saints have made great effort to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. The path of the Christian is not an easy path, but it is a path worth everything. With that, let's jump into this psalm. I am to look at four points and then some concluding thoughts. The first part will be called the sinner's petition, and we'll look at verses 1 and 2. The second part will be called descent to death, the dark night of the soul, and we'll look at verses 3 through 12. The third part is called a glimmer of hope, and we'll look at verse 13. The fourth part is called the darkness has won for this moment, and we'll look at verses 14 through 18, and then I will have a conclusion called the impermanence of darkness for the Christian. We'll briefly look at Psalm 30, chapter 5. So let's look at this first part, the sinner's petition. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. As Spurgeon hinted, there is a little light in this psalm. In the first verse, we see a tiny glimmer of light. The psalmist says, O Lord, God of my salvation. Here he properly sets the foundation for the psalm as a whole, and I dare say it, without this foundation, this poor soul would be adrift in the eternal sea of hopelessness. The assured salvation of God is his anchor. And he makes that known in verse 1. There are times when things get so unbelievably dark that the thread of salvation unravels to the smallest of fibers. The thread remains unbroken, and church, it will not be broken. 
but we can for a time feel as though we may be cast into the eternal abyss. However, keep this in mind. This first verse is the thread that holds this man to God. He is rooted in God. He knows him. And though things may get dark, that hope will not forsake him. While the first verse really helps us to see the anchor of this man's verse, the second verse helps us see the result of God being his anchor. This psalm is really a rally cry for persistent prayer, which I call the sinner's petition. How often do we experience difficulties, and yet we simply allow the pain of our experience to mute our cry to the Lord? I suspect that for some of us, this is the case. The psalm is truly a helpful reminder on the value of continual petition in our prayers. Even when life is harder than hard, and even when we're not receiving from God the resolve that we would like, we see a pattern set for us in this psalm, persistence in prayer. Allow me to speak of Jesus for a moment. Because when we find ourselves weary by God's reproof, let us remember him and let us remember what the author of Hebrews says of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 2 through 6. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may now may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when, he, when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. Let's think about Jesus for a moment. I know of no other religion that brings God to our level and yet retains his dignity power, sovereignty, mercy, and grace. Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, rather emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And Jesus himself says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is an amazing claim. The psalmist who had come to such terrible circumstances, he was able to persist in prayer and faith because of what Christ had accomplished on the cross. He wouldn't have known the particular circumstances that surrounded the Messiah and his return. Remember, this psalm is Old Testament. Rather, he would have been justified by his faith 
in God. We see evidence of the psalmist justifying faith in verses one, in verse one, when he claims that the Lord is his salvation. When the psalmist wrote this, he didn't know that the Lord would send his only begotten son to condescend, take on flesh, be tested, and provide the necessary atonement for the justification and redemption of sinners. He didn't know that. Simply, he walked by and was justified by faith. Church, it's a great blessing that we in our present age have the ability to look back on this and have the fullness of Scripture so that we know the specifics of Christ's role in redemptive history. What a privilege we have. Let us be comforted as we walk through troubles to know that no matter what, we who trust God by faith will know that He is our salvation and we can prayerfully persist in these present tribulations. With that, let's look to our next point. And this is where we'll spend a bulk of our time here today, the descent to death, the dark night of the soul. Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave? Or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness? Or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? I recently had the opportunity to bring a grieving coworker a meal after she lost her husband unexpectedly. My wife came with me, and when we entered her home to greet her, the room was full of grief. It felt as though there was a, a, an actual physical thickness in the air. There was a fullness in the room that everyone was acutely aware of. It was undeniable. The profound loss was inescapable. You see, this portion of Scripture brought that situation to my mind. My mind went to the widow's cry as that casket was closed and she would not see her husband anymore. Oh, such depths of sorrow that we must walk through, church. The psalmist here says, For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. Clearly, this man is dealing with something terrible. Something was not as he anticipated. Things were not right, so much so that he felt as though his soul, the very core of his being, was was drawing near to Sheol and even cast into Abaddon, which is hell. 
Sheol is a reference to an actual place. In the Old Testament, it was commonly used to just it was commonly used to describe where the dead would go. It's understood to be a temporary holding place. Furthermore, there are different places or compartments within Sheol. For, ex- for instance, there's a place within Sheol where the saved went to await rescue by the Messiah, and there's another place in Sheol where the unrighteous would go to await final judgment. The theme of this entire portion is related, really, to being cast to the depths or darkness or hell, Sheol. The psalmist here says, my life draws near to Sheol. Whether he sees himself going to the righteous part of Sheol or the unrighteous part of Sheol, that's not really the point. The point is that he perceives that God has put him in the pit. The very core of his soul is so distraught that he feels close to death. The language is such that it is intended to evoke despair and hopelessness, a feeling of abandonment by God. Church, do you feel that way? Have you felt that way? Do you feel that way today? Have you ever felt that? Do you know people who have felt that? Surely the answer is yes. The reality is that many of God's people have been cast into the pit. We sang of it before I came up here, though you slay me. Job chapter 13, verse 15, soberly states, though God, he slay me, I will hope in him. Before I move on to the next portion, I want to highlight a few observations. These are sub-points. God is sovereign over our suffering. We overstate our lot in suffering. Often we question God in our suffering. And then the redemptive realities of this psalm. God is sovereign over suffering. Take note of the psalmist's language in these verses. Verse 6, 7, and 8. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. In the midst of his doubt and turmoil, there's an assurance of God's sovereign power even in this trial. God put him in the pit. God has overwhelmed him. God has caused his companions to shun him. God made him a wretch to them. While the tone may sound accusatory or perhaps frustrated with God, It speaks of a fundamental truth. God did do these things. While we don't know the particular details of this man's suffering, we know that God is at the helm. The faith that acknowledges God's sovereignty in our suffering is the same faith that draws comfort in knowing that God is God. Notice, there is no accusation of wrongdoing on God's part, simply an honest cry of desperation for the same God who has ordained his suffering, to deliver him and see him through it. And in case you're struggling with that today, let me give you a few other verses that highlight this truth. Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16.9, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. 
Proverbs 19.21, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So, beloved, while this truth may be hard to comprehend, it is truth nonetheless. God is sovereign in our lives, and he is surely not absent in our suffering. Secondly, let us look at this next subpoint: overstating our lot in suffering. I want to focus directly on verse 7 here. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. It's common for those who are suffering to overstate their lot in circumstances as worse than they really are. As such, the psalmist didn't truly understand how foolish this statement was. Let me pause for a moment and make a clarity here. This psalm is what we call a psalm of lament. It's a personal song, a prayer, a cry to God. The psalmist can say the wrong things without it affecting the truthfulness of Scripture. It's important that we acknowledge this. For instance, we wouldn't read this text the same as we would read like a historical narrative in in Exodus. It's important for us to understand genre of Scripture and interpret the Word of God with that in mind. This psalm is a lament. It's a cry to God. So when I say the psalmist didn't understand the fullness of his statement about wrath, This does not mean that God made a mistake by allowing this to be in Scripture. God intends for us to know and relate to the psalmist in certain appointed times in our own suffering, so he ordains that it be a part of Holy Scripture. This doesn't change the truthfulness or infallibility of God's Word at all. Again, let's look at verse 7. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Charles Spurgeon says here of this psalm, he says, I have no doubt that Heman, Heman is the psalmist who wrote this, Heman meant wrath in its worst sense. He believed that God was really angry with him and wrathful with him, even as he is with the ungodly. But that was not true. There is a very grave difference between the anger of God with his children and the anger of God with his enemies. And we do not think Heman sufficiently discerned the difference. Even as we are afraid that many of God's children even now forget it, and therefore fear that the Lord is punishing them according to strict justice and smiting them as though he were their executioner. Do you see? When God is showing you discipline, his wrath is not upon you. Hebrews teaches that the Lord disciplines and chastises those whom he loves. We read it earlier. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Spurgeon continues this thought. He says, besides, the psalmist says, thy wrath lies hard upon me. Ah, if Heman had known what it was to have God's wrath lie hard on him, then he would have withdrawn that word. For all the wrath that any man ever feels in this life is but a laying on of God's little finger. It is in the world to come that the wrath of God lies heavy on men. Then when God puts forth his hand and presses with omnipotence upon soul and body to destroy them forever in hell, the ruined nature feels in its never-ending destruction what the power of God's anger really is. 
Here the really sore pressure of wrath is not known, and especially not known by a child of God. It is too strong a speech if we weigh it in the scales of sober truth. It's understandable that in our own suffering, we in our fallen humanity are brought to the edge of overstating how hard our circumstances are. It's true. However, be aware that God does not look upon you with wrath. Sam Musgraves taught a couple weeks ago that, that Christians act as if God is chasing them, angry with them, but they turn around and they see he's got a smile on his face. His wrath is not upon you, church. He looks upon you and sees Christ's redemptive blood. Your Father in this suffering is refining you. And even though it's in this difficult fog of despair, you may so quickly believe that God has shown unbridled wrath upon you. Understand this, that's a lie. It is not truth. If you're here this morning and you don't know this truth, this comfort, I pray that you turn from your sin and put your whole trust in the completed work of Christ on the cross. If you trust him by faith, then God sees you as a son and daughter, and his wrath does not lay upon you. Rather, his wrath wrath is put on his son in the place of you. This is the glorious truth of the gospel. Let it be so. Thirdly, let's look at questioning God in our suffering. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? So often in our suffering, we question God. Clearly, the psalmist has conflicting emotions towards God. He's struggling and crying out to God in his circumstances. He's honestly crying out in self-awareness that he is incapable of understanding all of God's ways. It's possible to read this portion and speculate that Heman was angry with God. It can be read as a sinful outburst, or it can be read as a right fear of God from a fallen man. Let me address anger with God for a moment. Make no mistake, if you're angry with God, that's sin. There is no doubt. Scripture never states that we can righteously condemn God or question him as if we were his judge. We don't get to judge God. That is blatantly sinful. But as fallen and sinful beings, we may find ourselves in places where we're struggling hard with being angry at God. If this is you, let me encourage you for a moment. First, venting your anger is different than truthfully and humbly bringing your anger to God. That distinction is vital. We're not to vent our anger towards God as in he's the recipient of our outburst and we're just unloading on him. But if you find yourself 
truly struggling with anger or frustration towards God, then it makes no sense to hide it or bury it deep because you are afraid to humbly bring it to him. Pastor John Piper said, if we do experience the sinful emotion of anger at God, what then? If we feel it, we should confess it to God. He knows it anyway. He sees our hearts. If anger at God is in our heart, we might as well tell him so, and then tell him we are sorry, and ask him to help us put it away by faith in his goodness and wisdom. Our attitude should be like the father in the Gospels who brought his sick child to God. We see this in Mark 9, 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. He understood his inadequacy and immediately brought it to Jesus. If you're struggling with anger towards God, then bring it humbly to him. Secondly, We can read this portion of scripture as Heman crying out to God and wrestling with why God is allowing this to happen to him. In our suffering, we often struggle with this same reality. Beloved, it is not sinful to query God and ask him humbly why he has brought us to where we're at in our suffering. It is okay to bring these questions to him and faithfully wrestle in our spirit with our present circumstances. As believers, we will often bring our struggles to God, knowing that what we're struggling with is for our own blessing and our own sanctification, but it is still difficult. It's interesting. The word Israel literally means to wrestle with God. That's what it means. It should follow that we, as spiritual Israel, will still wrestle with God as we struggle as elect exiles in this land of death and decay. However, we know the rest of the story. We're not left in the dark. We know that Christ sits on the throne, and we can find hope in him in the midst of our difficulties. Next, it must be stated that the redemptive realities behind this psalm cannot be hidden. You see, we know of another whose soul was full of troubles. We know of another who actually bore the unbridled wrath of God. We know of another who cried out in his circumstances that he was forsaken by God. You can read verses 3 through 9 from the vantage of Jesus on the cross. And if you have time, I encourage you to do so in your own personal study. Furthermore, you can respond as Jesus to the questions in verses 10 through 12 as an affirmative and resounding yes. So imagine Jesus responding yes to these. Do you work wonders for the dead? And Jesus says, yes. Do the departed rise up to praise you? Yes. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Yes. Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Yes. Because of what Christ did on the cross and because God raised him from the grave, we can see Christ responding to these man-centered questions with the affirmation of his victory over death, lostness, faithlessness, darkness, and forgetfulness. Because of who Jesus is, 
the God-man. He is able to be the sufficient Savior for us. We are not dead in sin. We are not lost sheep who are, sorry, we are the lost sheep who are found. We are full of hope. We have the light of the Lord within us. And we are not forgotten. Praise God for his faithfulness. Spurgeon adds this exposition here. He said, There was one upon whom God's wrath wrath pressed very sorely, one who was in truth afflicted with all of God's waves, and and that one is our brother, a man like ourselves, the dearest lover of our souls, and because he has known and suffered all of this, he can enter into sympathy with us this morning with whatever tribulation may beat upon us. His passion is all over now, but not his compassion. He has borne the indignation of God and turned it all away from us. The waves have lost their fury and spent their force on him. And now he sits above the flood. Yea, he sits as king forever and ever. As we think of him, the crucified, our souls may not only derive consolation from his sympathy and powerful aid, but we may learn to look upon our trials with a calmer eye and judge them more according to the true standard. In the presence of Christ's cross, on our own, our own crosses are less colossal. Our thorns in the flesh are as nothing when laid side by side with the nails and the spear. Let's look at our next meditation, verse 13. A glimmer of hope. But I, O Lord, cry to you, In the morning, my prayer comes before you. One may wish that this psalm ends here. There's a slight glimmer of hope here. Over and over and over again in Scripture, we see the word morning as associated with newness of blessing. Psalm 143.8, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Lamentations 3, 22 through 23, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Psalm 5, 3, O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. I could go on and on, but the point is clear. There is a respite that is assumed here, a brief moment of looking to the dawn in hope. However, we know from the remainder of this psalm that it is brief. It does not last. And so it makes us ask a poignant question, why? Why is this here? Why doesn't the psalm end here? Why must it continue on to despair? To answer that question, let us look no further than to the Apostle Paul. He says in Romans, and thank God he says this in Romans, as it's a verse that many of us find so comforting, because it's the truth that we all experience. He says in Romans 7, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Again, Spurgeon's commentary says, I often do that which I do not justify, which I do not wish to do again, which I abhor myself for doing. This is the believer's riddle. To say that this is not a believer's experience is to prove that the man who says it does not know much about how believers feel. We hate sin, 
And yet, alas, alas, we fall into it. We would live perfect lives if we could, yet that are renewed. We make no justification for our sin. It is evil and abominable, yet we do find these two things warring and fighting within. The psalm does not end in verse 13 because Heman's circumstances dictated that it would not end in that moment. Yes, he cried out to the Lord, but his attitude quickly turned again to the worthless, stinking, putrid lies of the deceiver. He did the very thing he ought not have done, as did Paul, as did Spurgeon, as did me, as do we all. We hope in God for a moment and then allow our minds to wander adrift to the sea of sin and temptation, and we do the very things that we do not want to do. And we echo Paul's words at the end of that section. He says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Finally, look with me at the last portion of this psalm. The darkness has won for this moment. I want to close out these remaining verses by reading them from the vantage point of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Verses 14 through 18. Imagine this is Christ speaking. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Christ was cast away, and God did hide his face from him. He was afflicted and subjected to death. He became helpless on the cross. His flesh was poured out. God's wrath did sweep over him, and unlike Heman, God's dreadful assaults did destroy Jesus. He was shunned by his beloved father as well as his friends, and he only knew darkness in that moment. Church, no matter how difficult things get, you did not and do not have it as difficult as our bloody champion, Jesus Christ. We must keep that in our minds. Finally, let's look at our conclusion this morning the impermanence of darkness for the Christian. It's true that your suffering is hard. It's true that I can't know how difficult it is. I've suffered, in some respects, quite a lot in my life. However, to some, I may have had an easy life. The Lord has gifted me with a mind that is easily brought to darkness. I understand mental affliction. I understand hating myself for what I've done. I also understand despising myself because I am prone to depression. Intrusive thoughts, anxiety, fill in the blank. It's all very difficult at times. However, I do not know what it is to feel to be the one who is at the hands of the abuser. I haven't experienced that. Or to have levels of physical pain that can cripple a person. I don't know about that. 
or to suddenly lose a loved one. There's much I cannot sympathize with because I am no authority on suffering. But I want to leave you all with this. Psalm 30, verse 5, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. This psalm ends in a very dark place. It's unresolved. It leaves us asking, what happened to Heman? Is he okay? And honestly, we don't know. Surely, as a saint of the Lord, his weeping did tarry for the night, but soon thereafter came the joy of the morning. Perhaps his weeping carried on for a long time, maybe months, maybe years. But know this, at some point, Heman's life came to an end, and he was ushered into eternal life with his Savior, Christ Jesus. Church, that will be our story too. As Paul reminds us, I will say it again, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Take heart, brother and sister. You are not alone. I suffer. I know many here who do as well. We all suffer with various different maladies and problems and sin issues. There is no shortage. But we are a blood-bought family. Let us take heart in that truth. We are ransomed by the blood of our powerful, suffering servant, Christ Jesus. This psalm ends in darkness. But it's very interesting. If you look in your Bibles at Psalm 88, right after verse 18, you see Psalm 89, verse 1. And it says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. So it goes from the depths of sorrow, of unresolved affliction, to the very next psalm of singing of the steadfast love of the Lord. May that be our testimony. May it be so. Praise God for his faithfulness in Jesus. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we are amazed at the truth contained in Scripture. We are amazed that you would send your Son, holy and perfect, to live among men, to die at the hands of filthy sinners, and to be the unblemished Lamb for all those who would, by faith, trust in Jesus as Lord. We are but beggars in need of grace. And I pray that this morning, those who are afflicted would find comfort knowing that their affliction is but a drop of discomfort compared to what Christ endured on the cross. I pray that our own crosses would diminish in light of his cross. I pray that many here would drink deeply at the brook of your truth, your security, your assurance, and your goodness. You are good, Lord. And even in this life, when things get so unhinged and difficult, your goodness remains. So let us shake off our doubts and difficulties 
and look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. It's because of Christ that we can pray to your holy name. Amen.